0: This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEN. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: Welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. It's brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Our first interviewee, we have Brad Ness, legendary Paralympic athlete and the newly crowned Waste Coach of the Year. Brad, welcome. Thank you, and uh, thank you for having me on your show. Mate, uh, it's great to have you. You're the first person we've done in this series, so that's, uh, that's very special. I want to take you right back to the start. You grew up at Wagen, Yep. On a farm or in the town? I know no, on the farm. So, yeah, uh, born
2: and bred in the Wagen District Hospital. So not many people can lay claim to that nowadays. And, uh, yeah, grew up on a wheat and sheep farm and, you know, it was very... Very lucky to do so because as a, as a kid, um, you know, to have that sort of free range is,
1: um, you know, it's invaluable. So you played Aussie rules, tennis, you're also a swimmer. Yep. Which of those were you best at as a kid, do you reckon?
2: Um, I I bit of everything really. I, I love tennis. I, the level of tennis never got that high, but I used to play in a lot of tournaments around the region down there. And when I came to school, I I played tennis all through school. Um, but it's one of those things where I, you know, if you don't get the, I suppose the, the dedicated coaching early and, and the repetitions in as a, as a kid, it's, um, sort of hard to progress too far, but I, I can handle myself, especially in doubles. I had a lot of fun there.
1: I remember your father. Um, I came from down that way as well. Your father, Ray was a very good footballer. Um, were you a footballer yourself?
2: Yeah, I, I love playing the game, I was, I was especially growing up at that time in the in the country. You know, the you, you sort of couldn't wait for the footy season to start and park the car around the oval on the trotting track and, uh, you know, get amongst it and, you know, you, I started off in D grade down there or actually in the nippers as they called it. Um, and you just couldn't wait to get to the next level because you know, you'd always have to run the boundary for them or, or do something. And especially with Dad playing, um, you know, the – the old change rooms with the soup after training in the winter and stuff, you'd always have to go and do something to be able to get a bowl of soup at, you know, uh, in the change rooms. And you just grew up with it and around it and every day. So it was only natural that you, you know, learned to kick it. And and the other thing was you, all the kids were mixed age. So if you wanted to get a kick, you had to go and earn it uh, the hard way, normally against bigger bodies. And I suppose, you know, can't talk too much for the materials, but you know, they were down there at the same time and, you know, we're all in it, you know, in the thick of things, so it was just a good time and love being around it.
1: So, there were two teams in Wagen there were Rovers and Federals. Your yep. dad was a Rovers player, and yep. then they became one Wagen. Did you experience the two team town, or yeah, yeah, big
2: time? Uh, and it was it like the same thing in Narragon as well? Um, I think they had Federals and Railways and not,
1: Railways was, and Towns, yeah, in Railways
2: and Towns, and yeah, it was a big thing. and The Derby was huge. Um, you know, I'd I get goosebumps thinking about it just because of, even as a young kid, um, you are know, hearing the, the chatter amongst the old fellas and what they were going to do on the weekend and if they had a win. Um, I know Rovers were always at the Moran's Hotel down there on the corner. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was just one of those things and it's a, you know, it's a sort of a shame that the, the populations in the country towns have dwindled now. I think Arthur Rivers are part of Wagen and you know, I think a lot of teams have had to amalgamate. But the main thing is at least there's still a league down there and, and people are still able to play.
1: That would have been where your farm was, wouldn't it? Would have been out Arthur River Way?
2: Yeah, in between. So, um, you know, obviously there was a, the family, and the, the family farm was uh, Bokal in, in uh, Darkin, so in Arthur River. So, yeah, we sort of went between the two, and we were more wage inside. So that's where we um, sort of gravitated to.
1: Tell us about yourself as a footballer. What <laughs> sort of a footballer were you?
2: Um, Played a lot of ruck. I mean, I wouldn't do it now, too small. <laughs> um, yeah, played a lot of, played up and down the centre um, mainly, you know, ruck, ruck, full forward back when that was sort of like the traditional thing to do. Um, Love kicking a goal. Um, but also, I suppose as I got older and um, you know, got in towards more the, I suppose, the, the bigger bodied stuff, I started playing a bit down the back as well, um, which was fun. But, no, can't substitute charging out for full forward and trying to emulate t- Tony Lockett.
1: My memories of waging was that everything was big the club rooms were big the oval was big because yeah. of the, the the oval felt a lot bigger than it really was probably because of the 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 trotting track around it I think if you were playing at waging you had to learn to run didn't you it was a pretty big ground yeah and it
2: was wide as well um obviously because of the the, the track and i mean the, be, the the best thing about it and the memories I have is just when when waging had kicked a goal and you know all the horns you know arc up from everyone sitting in their cars and um there was a lot of runoff and it was pretty open as well so um, you know, the, when the, when it started getting wet and a bit windy, it was, a it was a tough,
1: tough one to play on. So you went to school wage and was that just primary school? When did you, yeah. so, when did you first go to Aquinas?
2: Uh, yeah, when I was 12, um, big eye opener for myself. Um, hated wearing shoes even on the, on the farm. Um, <laughs> so yeah, all of a sudden to go from wearing, you know, the, the wage and footy shorts and you know and a singlet or a TO most, most of the time to having to put on, you know, shoes and long socks and a tie. Um, yeah, it was, it was tough and, you know, I mean, I grew up, never had a bike, had a motorbike and all this sort of stuff and then, yeah, to go away to school. But I think the, the biggest thing for me was, you know, I, I love being around teams and, and being, um, you know, just a part of, of a unit and even at boarding school, it was always straight away, I went to Pinderbor, so, you know, it was boarding, boarding house against boarding house and there was no, no love loss and, you know, <clears throat> we'd go out and have a kick and, it was just like, you always had that identity of, of belonging to you know, a, a group and, you know, to go away to boarding school and, you know, all of a sudden have 18 tennis courts and three or four footy ovals and a 50 meter swimming pool and indoor basketball court, all these things. And it was just, it was as a kid, you know, I couldn't have wished for anything more. And, um, you know, we had some good coaches there who, you know, just inst- you know, instilled the, the fundamentals of sport into us. And, and then the other thing was, like I said, and I can't, I suppose I can't highlight it enough. Was just you know we were red and black. I, when I went to Italy for the first time, they asked me what soccer team or football team I was I was going to support. Had no idea, but Milan AC Milan was red and black, so I just said AC Milan, and it was it was off the colours of Aquinas being red and black. So,
1: what sports did you play, and what level did you did you play at when you were at school? Um, sort of. On the fringe of both the first
2: eight and the first eighteen, I've got games in 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 both the tennis and and the uh, football at the high level. i, I represented in the swimming and um, our know, reserve in the athletics, and um, so I was always on the fringe. And I think it's just one of those things where you know, growing up, try to do everything and never really concentrated on on one thing. But I think the beauty about that is that, um, especially now with the with the coaching, I'm always looking at different sports and seeing what they do and how I can bring that into our sport in in wheelchair basketball. And I think playing a lot at a pretty high level across the board um, has given me a really good, I suppose, grounding and understanding of, you know, sport in general,
1: especially team sport. So two things about it, Aquinas tended to be very competitive and very successful in most of the sports. So I guess that gives you that grounding in games that matter yep. uh, for starters. How important was that to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was huge. I mean, Pete Spencer had just come on as as the coach in the football so straight away we had a, a pretty high level coach there. And you know, I remember playing against Guildford um, one day out at Guildford and it was like really windy and, you know, you had Brian Sirikowski on the hill, you know, just, you know, bellowing out instructions, even though he was just there watching his son and, you know, just, but the atmosphere of those and having those sort of people um, around the group constantly, uh, you know, it, it was, it was huge. And you're always, you're always picking up something. You're always learning something and, and, you're right. I mean, we were fiercely competitive. Um, you know, in the first eight rowing, we, we didn't want to lose that. And also the athletics, we always wanted to bring home the the shield. And you had a lot of guys that did a lot of different sports. You know, they'd be running around, you know, playing football twice a weekend at school in clubs and then switching over and, and doing the aths. So we were always tough and it was it was
1: really hard to, you know, to get to the top there. Um, did you have aspirations to go higher level sport based on the the – the sport you were playing at school?
2: Yeah, um, <clears throat> I was. I remember when I got the letter from Claremont. I was playing
1: at West Coast Amateurs on the weekends, even though we went to. Hang <laughs> on a minute. Hang on a minute. Waging south from Anl. How did how did you end up in the clutches of Claremont?
2: Where I was living, I just my cousin Simon Ness, who you know, he's like a brother to me, and um he was playing for West Coast Amateurs with Danny yep. Southern and a few others, and yep. um they said come down and, and and have a run, and I was like, oh, I just. The parents had just come up to the city, and I just happened to be near West Coast, and I thought, oh, "I'll go down and I just I just want to get a, get a game on the another game on the weekend." And it was from there that Claremont sort of said, we'll come down and and join the Colts." And I didn't realise, you know, through the South Fremantle zoning, um, that I was meant to probably go to South Fremantle. And so, right at the last moment, they got a clearance, and I was able to go to I'd go to Claremont. It sort of ducked under the radar of South Fremantle being at Aquinas, so. Um, yeah, fortunate enough, because I was always Claremont, I was a mad Claremont supporter. I'm a mad Carlton supporter. And, um, to be given that uh, opportunity was huge. And I think, yeah, it didn't do much for my school grades, <laughs> being <laughs> that it came just before my last year 12 exams. But, um, I, I mean, I had, I had dreams and aspirations to, to go as far as I could. Would I have done it? You know, percentages say no, but I was certainly going to die trying. Did you play some Colts footy at Claremont? Yeah, played a bit of Colts, um, at at Claremont. That's when I started on the boats as well. And um yeah, I suppose that was one of the contributing things to to how I end up in Paris Sport was the fact that yeah, I just wanted to work as much as I could over summer so during the winter I could um concentrate on footy.
1: We'll take a break. We'll head into the break on inspiring sports stories. Brad Ness stays with us after the break. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on all the little moments because the little things are everything.
0: This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. It's brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We're talking to Brad Ness, legendary Paralympian and also the head of wheelchair basketball at the West Australian Institute of Sport. Brad, you talked about playing Colts footy at Claremont and also going to work on boats to help supplement your income. This is where the, the life-changing event comes in, can you tell us what happened uh that day on the boat when you had the accident that that cost you your leg below your knee?
2: yeah I, I mean things have changed now which is which is good, but back then you know the, I suppose the control on the hours you worked and um I suppose the conditions are, you know um, were a bit more laxed to be, to be fair it's actually thirty years uh twelfth to twelfth this year it be thirty years which is flowing by but yeah look we're just we're on the back of a um of a double double, so we' actually i got at the time of my accident, they signed me off um, and I actually worked 37 and a half hours in two days. So, you know, a lot of hours. We were pretty tired and um, it was the last trip of the night. We were at a Christmas party on board and as we pulled away from the from the jetty over there at Tomo Bay or Thompson Bay, um, there was no there was no island authority or anyone on the board because it was a, a Christmas party, a private charter type scenario. And as we pulled away from the, the jetty, the rope was still attached on the jetty and I'd actually uh, undone the rope inside the boat and trying to get the skipper's attention. We didn't have radios or anything at the time. So, uh, I tried to yell internally up the stairwell and then couldn't hear me. So yeah, anyone, anyone yelling out, you know, get us a beer or Christmas cheer or anything like that, um, sounded like my command all clear. And, um, he thought we were clear. And as I'm leaning out the, as I went to lean back out the the window to yell from window to window, I put my foot in the actual main, um, waistline, which is the, this this the center line, which is almost like the park break, um, put my foot in that and it snake round my, my ankle and tore it clean off out through the scupper hole. So yeah, they say your life can change in a split second. I begged to differ because I saw where I put my foot and didn't have the reaction to, to get it out. It was that quick. And, um, yeah, so yeah, next minute I've, I've gone from being a happy go lucky fellow to laying on the back deck of the roto ferry in a, in a world of trouble. And, um, you know, they tell me that you you should die within about five minutes of an accident like mine. And we just happened to have some people on board from Argyle Diamonds who were a response group, a response group. And there was a lady from um, what was R&I Bank. I think she was the husband of someone from R&I Bank. And she grabbed the main artery in my groin and these guys did some first aid and don't ask me how, but there was no chopper or anything ready to come across. So in the end, we went back on the ferry and yeah, it was a, a good hour and a half or so before I got into hospital and those guys were able to keep me alive. So yeah, was in the wrong place or the right, at, <clears throat> at the wrong time or the right place at the wrong time. I, I don't know, but it's, uh, I was just fortunate that those people were on board and um, being at the back end of a Christmas party, they still had the capacity to do what they did.
1: So the wrong place at the wrong time, but maybe having the right people around at that time to, to save your life. Yeah,
2: 100%. I mean, the first guy that grabbed me, his name was Fridge and he's just this massive man and um, his nickname was Fridge and he just grabbed me and held on to me and kept me from... Yeah, you know, going into shock and I'd actually been up at the hotel. I was like a maitre d' type person with a, with the people that we had on board and a good friend of mine, um, Johnny Langer, was there. Uh, he was playing for Subi at the time and um, he came down and was on the boat with me and my sister. They actually asked her for ice to, in case they found my foot. She was working at the pub. Um, so she came down. So, yeah, pretty traumatic for them, um, but I was really grateful that I had uh, you know, one of my best mates and... Yeah, you know, my sister there to yeah you know, just give me some comfort and give me some encouragement to, to make it home.
1: Did you realise when it happened how much trouble you were in, like the the pain of the incident, and then knowing what had happened? Yeah, well I
2: saw my foot go, um, and just being on boats, you just hear the stories, um, you know, crayfishmen, people going through the blocks, and all this sort of stuff, and um, yeah, I, I knew I was in a in a real bad way. And um, the first part was just it was more like a Chinese wristband, like just multiplied as much as you can do it. It was the burning sensation of the rope burn. That was really hard to, and I still will never forget that. Um, but once they got the morphine needle into me, I was, I was pretty happy for that. Um, (laughs) you know, that took away a lot of the pain, obviously. And then, um, you know, I had to squeeze my sister's hand the whole way home and I thought I was squeezing it hard and I was barely, you know, there was, there was not much there. And, um, so yeah, they, we got in, I suppose we got back in the nick of time and, um, yeah, obviously, mum and dad come down to the hospital, and um, they told her I'd gone through the props, so she thought I'd gone through the propeller. So when she saw me, she was pretty um, relieved to know it was just my foot, basically. And I knew the foot had gone. So when I woke up um, on the Monday and they amputated it just below my knee, yeah, you know, I was I was happy with it. It wasn't like I'd been knocked out or something in a car crash, and I'd woken up. And that's what I was dealing with when I came to. I knew what I I knew what had happened, so it wasn't a shock. And I think that was a a, a massive um, boost to being able to get on with things so quickly because, yeah, you know, I, I know what the the outcome could have been quite easily, and I was just grateful that you know, I was still alive. And yeah, you know, some say I might have paid a high price for it, but in reality, I mean, I'll give my foot for for my life any day of the week. I just didn't want the accident to determine who I was. So I think as much as the rehab was tough, and um, yeah, like I said, it's just it's hard when you need to depend on people at the start. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna smash this, so I can get get this part
1: done and get on with life. What about the mental side of it? That would be, I imagine, even more challenging than the physical side. Yeah, it
2: is. And uh, I look, I look at what's going on now um, with Are you Okay, and I, I just, I welcome all of it, and I can't help but think we're sort of under onto something because young young men, as eighteen year olds. I've on my phone, I've still got a, uh, we've got an app, obviously WhatsApp, but I've got a group called Old School. And it's the the first five blokes I met at school, um, and as a 12 year old and we're still in contact, you know, daily, weekly and checking in on one another. And and those guys got around me, um, and they were just a huge support to myself. And, and every time I had a, a bad day or I was going, yeah, you know, and there was dark times, don't get me wrong. And, um, you know, they just picked me up and, and, and get me through it and, yeah, we looked outside the square a lot I uh, talk about the time when we were going to go bungee jumping, I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to let the guys not to want to do it because I couldn't do it. I didn't know that that already worked out, that there was a um, harness and that you put on the bungee cord comes out from the middle of your back. So,
1: so where did you go to do that? Bibber Lake.
2: Yeah. Yep. And um, so there are just little things like that and that they always sort of helped find a solution or they'd already found a solution to make sure that, yeah, I, I was included in it and yeah, you know, fast forward 30 years to today. Um, you know we're still together, and we're, you know, we've got a boat trip organised back over to the Rock you know, in the next few weeks to celebrate 30 years. And it'll be those same guys that I met in on you know my first day at school. They'll be on the boat because they were they will front and centre.
1: So who are those key guys? The the guys you mentioned in that WhatsApp group?
2: Uh, well, there's Scott Elwood, Dave Surikowski, John O'Langer, Luke Vladic, Adam Crane, and if you they're the. The other one from that is Daniel Walsh, who was a late grace boy. And yeah, they, they just around, around me 24 seven and, um, just played a massive part in making sure that, yeah I was going to be good. I actually didn't shed a tear until about six months down the track. Never when I saw uh, any counseling, um, they were my counselors right or wrong. And then just my family and, and their, their families as well. I mean, they just, it was just a, it was, I suppose it's a all in approach and, um, we didn't know what we we're doing. We just. You know, know, we just learned from the things that we didn't get right and made sure we got it right the next time.
1: We'll head to another break on Inspiring Sports Stories. Brad Ness stays with us after the break to talk about his introduction to wheelchair basketball. Thanks to Bowra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
0: This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bowra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEN. Thanks to Bowerer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. It's brought to you by Bowerer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We're up to the point where you're basically re entering sporting life. Tell us how you got interested in wheelchair basketball.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a it's a funny one, and I actually talk on this a bit when I'm talking to, you know, groups, but I'd actually started swimming um with Lynn McKenzie at, at the at um HPF there. And it was more just to try and keep fit. And um next minute she's had some state champs come out and there was a an inclusion bit at the bottom, um, some, um, para swimming. swimming. So I went in, went in one of the events and did okay. And next minute I was going with the WA team to the Australian titles. And, but yeah, I mean, I, I always loved swimming, but I did it so much at school that chasing the black tiles up and down again, didn't really hold it to me, but it was giving me something. And it was giving me a, a bit of a focus just to be able to you know, get out of bed and do something. I, I couldn't go near the footy, um, footy ground at the start, in fact, my first game of footy, um, I went to see post-accident, was to watch Dave Sirikowski, um debut for St Kilda, um, yep. which was, I went over to Melbourne. And, and I went and sat in the stand and I was like, I'm an idiot. Why, why have I been denying myself, you know, something that I love so much? And so I got over that. And so I was sort of swimming, wasn't doing much. And this old guy kept ringing the house asking me if I'd play footy because I actually went and played one game for Trinity Aquinas um, with a few of my mates uh, and I think it was G grade or something, and I see if I could play in the forward pocket, and I don't have to go anywhere, I'm in, and I kicked one goal three, and yeah, it was in the paper, and this guy saw it, and he just, he wanted to get me to go and play wheelchair basketball, and I'm like, no, nah, I don't need a wheelchair, not interested, not interested, dad would say he's not interested, and then finally to get him off my back, I, I went down there and tried it, and I remember hearing Kevin Sheedy say, like, just give everyone the time of day and listen to their story, because you don't know how that's going to shape your life, and you know, I get down there, it turns out this old guy was Billy Mather-Brown, who's a, you know, para-sport legend. He went to our first Paralympics in 1960 in Rome, and he had this little team at the Shenton Park Rehab Centre. So I went down there, and I'm out on court, and someone come through and cleaned me up, and uh, I'm looking up at the ceiling, and I get up seeing red, and going, this is going to be a foul. And they're like, nah, Brad, that's in the rule." So <laughs> spent the next hour chasing around, trying to get him back, couldn't catch him, and I thought, I've found my sport. Like, you know, you can lay a hit. It's, you know it's a team sport and and I just loved it straight away and I, I I look back on it and goes if I just got into it a bit earlier you know because I wasted a couple of years um so what yeah. year was
1: this when you started playing oh
2: geez you, you got me here it would have been around ninety three ninety four probably around yeah. ninety four and um wa had no center not that we use centers anymore and the in the sport has evolved a bit but so they chucked me in the chair and next minute I'm representing wa in wheelchair basketball and I played my first game and I'd be pushing down the court and falling out of the chair on my own. And my mates come to watch and they're like, Oh, this is a bit hard. We can't put ourselves through this, but yeah. And we got, I I will never forget. We played South Australia and they had four of the starting five of the Australian team in that, in that group. And yeah, I just, it was just a challenge. Like I said at the start, I just wanted to be better. Uh, I didn't want to not be able to contribute on court and I certainly didn't like losing. I'm highly competitive and, you know, so I just want to get better and uh, the pre-season was pushing around Lake Munger and by the time I'd get home or get back to my car, they'd already gone and I'd have no skin left on my hands and then they said, Brad, take the chair and go shopping in it. So I'd be having crashes in the aisles and stuff with people and shopping trolleys and but I just learned to use the chair and that was the biggest thing and and then just the, I suppose the sporting, yeah, you know, just all my, you know, the time I'd spent playing all different sports. Um, just gave me that, uh, I suppose that advantage to be able to read and understand the game and and you know spacing and all of that. Um, yeah, just and I just I just loved it and and from there end up in Melbourne and it just took off.
1: It leads to one of the great careers. Um, I think you're a five time Olympian. Yep, is that right? What's the What's the highlight of your Olympic career?
2: I think as a team, um, the gold medal in Beijing was. Was just, I mean, it's hard to top it. Um, we did go back to back world champions after that, uh, which was just incredible to be in, in a part of a group for that long um, with that same success. But yeah, that gold medal game and then and the flag going up the, you know, the post afterwards and you hear your anthem. Um, yeah, you know, just to know that everything that you'd sacrificed and, and worked towards um, had paid off. And, so that uh, was versus Canada. Canada, we did a trilogy, um, so we we played them in two oh four in Athens and lost and uh, did we think we'd make the gold medal game? Probably not. Um we knew we were good. Uh, we just didn't realize how good. and so we got to that final and and they were rightly so favorites and won. Then we took them on in Beijing again in the final and we beat them there, and then we played them again in London in two twelve and and lost and and that one really hard to that's really hard to to swallow. i've I've never watched that game, um. Yeah, we should have we should have won that
1: one what do you remember about the gold medal game when you won the 12, <laughs> not a lot 12 point win
2: um not a lot just pushing around the uh court with a, with an australian flag uh wrapped right around my neck um yeah just just couldn't believe it i actually got subbed out just towards the end and with, with a minute or so i can't quite remember and just watching it from the sidelines and yeah just knowing we had it in the bag was was unreal um and then something very special two days later getting all the, all the low pointers, which are the more, um, disabled guys up to the top of the great wall of China and just sitting there as a group, um, knowing that we'd, you know, we'd conquered, conquered the world. It was, um, it was huge. And that, and that final just, you know, just the atmosphere, the crowd was massive. Um, and just, just knowing we'd, you know, defeated a team that was so, so good with Patrick Anderson and Joey Johnson and, you know big bear and and the others that they had i mean that team was unreal and to to beat them and and say hey you know what we're we're the champs now it was
1: um it was huge how physical do you have to be playing uh wheelchair basketball yeah it's physical
2: um the rules have changed a little bit now uh and uh, and and rightly so um you know, especially on fast breaks and stuff it's it's you've got to have clear path to the to the basket now, um, which is like no different to the Able Bod FIBA rules. Um, but it is, it is physical and you've got to be able to take a hit. Um, there is a lot of chair contact and, you know, you've got to be able to, you know, got to be able to take a hit and, and hit the, hit the floor hard and, you to know, be able to get back up and, and go again. Uh, there's no, you know, there's no room for, for being able to take a backwards step or a backwards push. Um, and as Australia, as a team, we're renowned as, you know, playing really hard and being really, really physical. And, yeah, we want to we want to dominate the paint. We yeah, we want to be. You know, our our motto is quicker, stronger, faster, and we just want to be physically
1: better than everybody else. How long did it take for you to realise you you might be pretty good at this?
2: <laughs> um, I remember I remember one of the the national league games when I was playing for um for Dandenong. So I played a couple of years at in Perth, and then uh, got approached to go to go to Dandenong, and they they paid me five hundred dollars for the season. And I thought they were going to give me that a week. And, um, but <laughs> when I found out it was for the season, I thought I always wanted to be a professional sportsman. And if you're going to pay me 500 bucks, I'm, I'm in. Um, so yeah, I remember going across to, to Nong and playing with the the legendary Sandy Blythe, who now no longer with us. And he was a point guard and captain of the Australian team at the time. And oh, he just fed me one day. It was just like, I mean, it'd be like having the, 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 you know, those massive midfield from the Eagles with Juddy and and Benny Cousins and that coming out, how you couldn't kick a hundred goals with those guys. Um, you know, it gets me beat, but yeah, you know, I had Sandy Blythe and he just, he just continuously just gave me the ball in the right spot. And I dropped 40 on a team and, and I thought, you know what, I can, I can actually do this.
1: How long did it take you to be a good shooter? Cause I guess shooting from a sitting position is very dif- different to shooting from standing up, jumping.
2: It, yeah, it did. And it took me a while to realize how to go about the points. Um,
1: I think I could always
2: shoot. I played a bit of basketball beforehand, um, but it was more just being able to use the chair and get in the right position. Um, and then it was just a matter of how far out you could take it, and that's one of the, the challenges we have with the with the guys today. It's like, how far can you can you push your your range from? So, yeah, it did take a few years. I, I would say probably, I, you know, four to five years to be able to really be comfortable. And, you know, but again, you just want to be better. So, like, once I've sort of mastered the right I wanted to be able to shoot my left around the basket and do all that sort of stuff and so to make myself harder to guard and yeah you're just always always working on the on the finer things right up until the end
1: we'll head to another break on inspiring sports stories Brad Ness stays with us after the break thanks to Barron O'Day don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything
0: This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEN. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEN. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. It's brought to you by Bauer and O'Day. don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything we're talking to Brad Ness, Paralympian legend Brad, take us to the end of your playing career about 2018 I think you're 43 years old
2: yeah um, we' just come off Rio, which where we finish um, I think it was six actually fifth or fifth or sixth sixth and it's really funny because we're playing Brazil and uh, I took a shot in 2.08 on the buzzer that let us beat Brazil by a point. Uh, I think we had four seconds to go, which set us up for the tournament. And then, you know, in 2.16 we're playing Brazil and I, I end up with the ball in my hands for the last shot on the buzzer to win by a point and I missed it. And um, I thought, well, it's probably getting close to, you know, <laughs> you know probably a sign then. But, yeah, you know, I carried the flag there at as the, as the opening ceremony and, you know, to be able to do that, win gold, win um, gold, you know do five i think yeah it was it was getting close to time and i was still rolling around the national team we toured um europe and that's when i came back and the, the wastes were you know about to do something pretty cool they were you know going to implement a, a full um sports wheelchair program and it was the first new program that they were going to introduce in 17 years so for them to have the foresight and um you know the courage to take on a para sport was huge and so I threw my name in the ring as a, as a coach and um, yeah, basically it was like, well, if you want the job, you're going to have to retire. So yeah, it was, um, I, I was just so fortunate to, to, to finish playing basketball and then literally start a job as a coach and yeah, I'm you know, for, you know, forever grateful for what this sport's done.
1: You're also married. Two kids, yep. Giovanna. Where, where yep. did you meet Giovanna?
2: Yeah, she was a part of a film crew over in Italy and um, she was doing a documentary on one of her teams that we were playing against. And after we finished playing one game, we played that team and we all went out together and the film crew were with us and, yeah, met her met her as part of that night. And um, she ended up throwing in her job with those guys and following me around and, and is a huge part of you know the, my career because you know, having, having her behind me and just being that, that constant support, um, especially being away so much, was was you know, really really good to have. And yeah, now we've got two little ones, and yeah, based back here in Perth.
1: So when you look back on your career, you talked about the the gold medal at the Paralympics. That's that's a high point. You also um, won an MVP award, didn't you? Was that back in '06 when the National League? Yeah, it one. There's been a
2: few. I think the one you're talking about is um the Sandy Blythe Medal and and being a, voted Australia's best player yep. internationally and.
0: To be recognised
2: by your uh, by your peers, um, in that way was was pretty was huge. Um, yeah, there's only a few people that have done it. Um, you know, being guys that have won it multiple times. So I think, yeah, about that time was when I really hit my straps and I was probably at the best at, at the top of my game. Um, sort of post two twelve to eight, I started playing a facilitating role. Um, and I just wanted to make sure when I came on. Um, sort of like every 30 seconds I was contributing one way or another, being a rebound or a point assist. And, um, so yeah, the, the mindset of how I played changed a lot. Um, but at that period of time, it was like, go out on court and just
1: try and dominate. What sort of injuries do you accrue as a wheelchair basketballer?
2: Yeah, my left arm's taken the brunt of that. I've had my shoulder redone and my elbow redone. Um, my left finger here, I actually sat, I dislocated it where I put the bone up on top of the other one when I was in. Um, playing with Australia in Italy and had to go to hospital to get that one fixed. So yeah, I've had my fair share. Um, but shoulders are the big one. The shoulders are probably like um, you know footballers' knees.
1: You also had uh, a, a scholarship and a and a career in college basketball in America. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, well, when I was in I was in Melbourne playing and then um, again Troy sort of said, "Look, if you want to go to college, we can make it happen." And um, at that stage, it was about just getting as many games as I could. So uh, yeah. <laughs> One minute I'm in Melbourne living in Dave garage and, uh, you know, the next next time within I'm at, on a, on a full-ride scholarship at the University of Texas in Dallas and, um, you know, playing there. But the beauty about that, I mean, that was sort of 2000 and that was the first time I saw inclusion at the level of what we're trying to get to now here in Australia. Yeah. That team was seen as a – was just part of the athletics department. Um, we got big crowds. We got everything that the, the NFL guys got or the American football guys got, the baseballers, and it was just unreal to be – Put in that same bracket, um, and that was a—I suppose that was a big catalyst of a big kickstart, fast track um, to being able to make that Sydney two thousand team.
1: Why coaching? Why did you think you yeah. wanted to coach? I love sport, <laughs>
2: yeah. but no. Look, the, uh, the way I look at it is that one—I want to be the best coach I can be. Um, you know, I'd love to be able to one day coach the rollers at a at a Paralympics. Um, you know, that's what I'm—you know—aim to do there. And but I mean, the big thing for me is that. If I can assist a power athlete uh, to be able to get on the journey and use wheelchair basketball as a vehicle to, to pave their way for life and, and have, you know, the experiences that, that I've had, then, yeah you know, why wouldn't I do it? Um, I, I've mentioned guys like Bill Mather-Brown, Frank Ponta, these guys that were here in WA that did so much for so many athletes. And, yeah, it's just sort of like I just want to pay back and, and um, through coaching I can do that. What sort of coach are you describe yourself <laughs> I'm going to say a hybrid now between old school and new school I think the being a part of the West Australian Institute of sport has been um, yeah it's it's unbelievable um, the resources that we've got access to now as a coach and we've got mentor coaches now through the AIS and they've got a program for the coaches to be able to get us um, you know as good as we can be um, but then I can't go away from the Pete Spencers and um, yeah you know, the Daryl Kickets and you know the Murray Treders through wheelchair basketball, um Ben ettridge, these guys that you know really shaped me um as a younger, as a younger, you know first as a, as a kid and then as a as a young man. and um you know just uh, some of the the lessons they taught me, and um, you know, I've taken probably a little bit from all of them and and made who I am today. And look, I don't think there's there, there's no substitute for heart work, but you've got to be smart about it. and. And in today's realm, um, yeah, you just got to go about things a bit differently.
1: How far have we come? You mentioned inclusion. How far have we come and how far have we got to go in Australia, do you think?
2: Yeah, I think we've got a long way to go. Uh, I think if you look at, I think we're doing some good things in in the disability space. Um, but, you know, disability is only one part of inclusion. Um, you know, when you look at, you know, sexuality, race, the whole bit, I think we've got a bit of a fair way to go. But at least at least the spotlight's on there now, and um, people are wanting to learn or or, or have awareness on yeah you know, how to how to speak to someone with a disability or what to expect. and um, the other thing is just how we're going about things as a society, when we're building yeah you know, roads, paths, buildings, et cetera. We've now got that in mind. I don't know how people, you know thirty, forty years ago got around and um, and did the things that they did. I take my hat off to them. So, look, I think we've come we've come a long way, but we've still got a long way to go. And um, but I think in the terms of para sport, yeah, we're on a we're on the crest of that wave now. And um, you know, people really see the sport for what it is, um, and it's, it's starting to go away from I suppose the backstories that people are interested in. And saying, you know what, this is actually you know something worth watching. And I think that's where wheelchair basketball is now. And um, you know, I'm pretty proud of that.
1: What about the mental health space, particularly when people suffer a disability like yourself um, midlife, um, how much work do you do in, in that space and making sure people are, are okay around that space?
2: Yeah, I mean, I had no idea when I first started coaching how how big that, that part of it was and how uh, how important it is. And I suppose that's been the, the biggest learnings for me is the whole mental health side of it in sport. Um, I understand now how people, when they finish, um, you know, go into you know dark times and, but also I understand now why people don't fulfill their potential because they're probably battling something in the background and, um, for whatever reason, but we just didn't know how to handle it. And we probably didn't know how to actually even realize what was going on. It was always, oh, that kid's got, you know, he's got issues, he's got behavioral problems, whatever it might be, but it's actually, he's probably just got some, some wellness problems there and, or some, you know, some obstacles. And once you can actually identify that and work with that, and you know, one, of, one of my S&C coaches, Adam Wolski, said to me, uh, um, sport's fair, but not always equal. And how you treat each individual, it might not be the same and it might not be equal. But at the end of the day, you, you might have to treat someone differently in a way to be able to make sure that they can reach their potential. And if it's in a team sport and everyone's at their potential and operating together, then that's a good thing, and and that's a good thing for the individual, and I think that's been the things that I've had to really open my mind up to, and and you know before before I sort of rule someone out or or go wholesale changes, it's more about understanding you know the person and and how they operate.
1: Can you ever see a time when you wouldn't be involved in sport? <laughs> yeah, when I've put, when I've gone to the next life. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. I just I, I just love it so much, and um, you know, and I just think it's it's an exciting time with. Yeah, with Brisbane 32 coming up, um, you yeah, know, and, and what's going to come into Australia in in that realm. And, you yeah, know, I love the pro sports, the AFL, the, the NBL, all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I think you're going to see in the next 10 years, um, you know, Olympic and Paralympic sport come to the forefront.
1: Brad, thank you very much for joining us on the the first of this series, Inspirational Sports Stories. Uh, we've been brought to you by Baron O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Brad, I wish you all the best in your career ongoing and congratulations on your career so far.
2: Yeah, thank you. And, um, you know, I'm stoked to be first cab off the rank with this series and can't wait to see and hear all the other other stories. Thank you. Thanks, Brad.
0: This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.